A year ago, we saw a racial reckoning across all industries, and that included documentary film. Two of the most eloquent voices in our field are my guests, Sonia Childress and Jesse Wente. I'm Tom Powers, and this is Pure Nonfiction. Our conversation took place last year as part of the Toronto International Film Festival's Industry Conference. I brought together Sonia Childress and Jesse Wente via teleconference for a session called Creating a Better Documentary Industry. Sonia has a background in documentary impact producing. She worked with the organization's Active Voice and Firelight Media. She currently has a fellowship with the Perspective Fund for her work as a researcher, writer, and organizer. In June 2020, when the world was being convulsed by COVID-19 and the mass protests following the murder of George Floyd, Sonia published an article called A Reckoning, focusing on ways that documentary filmmakers needed to hold themselves accountable. In the article, she asks, what future are we creating and what structures must fall in order to build a new foundation? Ultimately, these conversations are not just about representation, they are about power. And sharing power is one step, but the next step is seeding power. And if people have been in power for a disproportionate amount of time, disproportionate to the people who are, you know, it, within their network, within their community, within the field, it is important to think about how I can either share power, but ultimately seed power. And that's the moment we're in. There are asks to share power, and there are now demands to seed power because new leadership will bring new ideas. My second guest, Jesse Wente, is an Anishinaabe film critic, writer, and arts leader. He worked as a film curator for 11 years at Tiff Bell Lightbox, where I was his colleague. Now he's the executive director of the Indigenous Screen Office in Canada. That organization released a Protocols and Pathways document to educate media for working inside Indigenous communities. This month, Jesse is publishing his first book. It's part memoir and part manifesto titled Unreconciled, Family, Truth, and Indigenous Resistance. You can see our show notes for links to all these references. We were speaking in September 2020. In the prior three months, the documentary field, like all organizations, was facing a new scrutiny. Our conversation is rooted in that moment, but a year later, the discussion points remain just as relevant. Jesse was joining me from Toronto and Sonia from Los Angeles against the backdrop of California's wildfires. Our conversation starts as I ask Sonia, what does this time of reckoning mean for her? You know, this reckoning is brought, um, is, is, is not just, you know, falling on our laps here in the nonfiction field. Um, you know, we're, we're, we're undergoing a, a global reckoning. And certainly in the Western, um, it, within Western countries who are having to confront, um, you know, centuries of, uh, you know, the opposite of right relationship with, uh, with communities um, whose land they took. Um, whose land they, uh, whose labor they took, um, uh, you know, they, we're in, in the United States, just, you know, for example, you know, this reckoning that we're seeing in nonfiction, we're seeing in the theater world, we're seeing in journalism, we are seeing in, um, 
in in the way people are in in law schools and the way law is applied in the criminal justice system certainly the way journalism is taught it's a reckoning about um a correction a demanding for a correction of of long-standing norms um, that favored one group over another and i think um you know the pandemic certainly brought uh, uh brought us to a standstill you know as a as a as a as a people um and forced us to confront what came after the you know the the initial pandemic which which was this uprising because of police brutality and state violence and and the con and then the confluence of that uh, you know with a recession um, has forced, you know, at least in the United States, but certainly you could say North and South America, a a, a confrontation with our past, uh, a confrontation with how our past has shaped our future in ways that we don't always like to acknowledge. And I think um, this, the 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 dire in economic circumstances, the 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 real fears around people's physical safety, has just turned what was once somewhat polite conversation and that was maybe um, assuaged by superficial responses. It just took all of that off the table and said, we need to look at the core issues that have created inequity and pain and we have to confront them and we have to think about new pathways, not a restoration to what we had pre-COVID, but we have to create something new, new systems, new economic systems, new relationships, new centers of power, new norms and, uh, and understandings of why and how we do this work. It all needs to be rethought. It all needs to shift. Um, and so, you know, what it looks like in our field, we, we know what it looks like. It looks like angry Facebook messages. It looks like, um, it looks like confrontations at film festivals. It looks like people out of work and, you know, festivals and organizations closing down. I mean, it, it is, it's, it's a cascade, but what we're talking about is that the foundation on which this field and this country was built on is broken and we can't, dance around that anymore. We have to look at that. And so that's to me what, what this reckoning moment is really about. Jesse, I want to uh, get your thoughts um, on this. I mean, this summer we did see, you know, uh, corporations making statements about Black Lives Matters. We saw, uh, you know, at least one sports team retire an old uh, uh, racist name. Um, we saw things, some things that are merely performative and some things that uh, feel like they're going uh, deeper. Um, so I wonder how you see the, if you see a power in this movement to, to leverage further change. I mean, there's definitely a power in the movement to leverage further change. I mean, you mentioned the mascot issue. Um, First Nations people have been protesting outside that stadium since the 60s, every, every opening game. Um, but it changed this year, uh, and and why is that? I would I'd suggest a couple of things that collide. One is um, most importantly in a solidarity between racialized people, between Indigenous and Black people. You know, we're we have a lot of solidarity and mutual interest in this moment. Um, things like mascots um, and the dehumanization that they represent are interconnected with the dehumanization that is uh, enforced by police 
and that we see in their actions and in, in so-called justice systems. Um, and so, you know, I, I think it's not a coincidence that it took a solidarity movement to actually see that um, change. It also comes because we saw, you know, they're changing syrup and rice and all this sort of stuff. And, you know, I think I think one thing to keep in mind, those are all brands. And we have to understand that racism is is part of branding and was part of branding and that it's interconnectedness uh, with capitalism and in fact capitalism's reliance on racism um, means that in this small slice briefly you know racism became unprofitable and while i would love to imagine that dan snyder uh, the owner of that football team has somehow had a moment of revelation I think we have to be brutally honest, he is not. His dollar was threatened, and so he made a change. Um, I think this is instructive um, in terms of how to protest a strategy around, in a capitalist system, attack the money. Um, you, know, you know, that's that is a very effective way uh, to do it. Um, but one thing, Tom, I think so much about, so much of what we're discussing, um, is that it? These are harm reduction measures. Um, these, you know, even the ISO. If we were to get, achieve everything we wanted to, um, that would still ultimately just be harm reduction. Because unless we have a fundamental shift in the the underpinnings of of what our society guides, and that is capitalism, um, unless we're actually going to get to those things, shifts in documentary, and, and they're great, and they're much needed, but ultimately they are harm reduction for our community who are wishing to operate in the spaces under a capitalist system. If we really wanted to change it for our grand great-grandchildren, we have to end capitalism. And where storytelling can help is that um, we actually need to start telling a story, because the one of the capitalism has used storytelling in, to a remarkable effect to uh, condition and um, make people believe that it is a system that serves them when it never was and was never built with that intention. It is a system to serve a very few and grind the rest of us under its heel. And if there's a way for us to start counteracting the storytelling that prizes individualism over collectivism, that prizes individual achievement over collective uh, achievement, um, then that is, we should be engaging in that storytelling immediately. Uh, the world, not to put it too bluntly, literally hangs in the balance of these choices that we're making. Um, unfortunately, you know, we're, we're, we were talking to Sonia before we came on. I mean, the world is literally burning where she is. Um, it is figuratively burning pretty much everywhere else. And yeah, I mean, I, 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 I'm, I absolutely, when I read Sonia's piece this summer, it moved me, and, and we need all of these changes, but we can never lose sight that they are just a small piece of a much bigger thing. We need to shift all of the equity and all of these sectors that we can achieve will ultimately be meaningless if the solution is just presented as more capitalism. That is just not a solution for this, and we need to get there and unfortunately we need to get there at a, at a speed that I worry our 
society is is right now just unable to grapple with. Jesse talks about capitalism. Uh, Sonia, in your articles, uh, you talk a lot about the economic uh, power structure that the documentary film industry uh, is a part of. I, I want to bring this to you know the to to the point of view of a documentary filmmaker who's trying to navigate in this world, uh, telling their stories. And on the one hand, to reach a wide audience. Um, uh, potentially means having to engage with uh, corporate infrastructures that you know may not have as their top um, uh, goal telling an authentic uh, story. Um, or you can tell your own you know pure story and there are outlets that you could take it to, whether it's the Imaginative Festival or the Black Star Festival in Philadelphia or the kind of, that kind of grassroots network. And there's a lot in between. Um, uh, Sonia, you talked about the way in which you're working to help connect uh, the, this rising tide of grassroots uh, networks. There's organizations like Brown Girls Dock Mafia and ADOCS and Forward Docs and Cousin and uh, so many of these really important organizations that um, have uh, appeared um, in uh, recent years. Um, for you know, for, for the people who are in those organizations who are you know deeply uh, committed to telling authentic stories about their community, but also want to make a living within this capitalist system, want to you know reach the widest possible audience, want to you know grow their careers as much as possible. Um, you, can you talk about some of the you know the the tensions that? Are faced there, and you know what you see is the kind of creative solutions that people are finding to to work their way through that. You know, I, I love what Jesse said because I think you know we we have to we have to name the the specter of of capitalism that shapes um, um, everything that you know that, that shapes the framework in which we're all working in, and 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 also just say that that capitalism is racialized, right? And and within a racialized capitalist system, you know, filmmakers of color are now and and white filmmakers are navigating um, uh, navigating this field in in many ways. Um, commodifying stories and considering how stories become commodities in which, in which they use as leverage to position themselves um, in, in an industry that, that, that uh, feels unsustainable, uh, personally un unsustainable. And, and the problem isn't about who gets to tell whose stories, it's that we are competing in a capitalist and racialized capitalist system. And we are being told that in order to survive that, in order to win that competition, we've got a jockey, we've got to trade in stories, we've got to turn churn work out faster, which means we are not in right relationship with the people who we're telling stories about. We are just commodifying that stories, churning it out, and handing in the next one. We are trying to think about the market value of stories um, and, and how we leverage the market value of stories. It has poisoned and influenced um, all of these what you know artistic choices at a very basic level beyond just how people try to navigate a career um, in this field it is influencing our artistic choices this racialized capitalist system is influencing our curation our and and, and, a, and an artist's basic 
artistic choices. So I think we have to kind of say that um, because I, I think in some ways, um, I, and I would also just push back that, you know, uh, 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 you know, these these festivals like Black Star or Imaginative um, that's creating a festival, you know, these these spaces um, are centers and have been, especially for the more established festivals, are centers of gravity. Um, they may not be considered elite spaces. They may not be considered gatekeeping sites of power um, to navigate yourself within a within an industry. But for the filmmakers and for the audiences, this is the place of power. And I think we have to also recalibrate our thinking um, around that, around the importance of these spaces. These are the audiences we've been wanting to serve. These are the communities we're in, in relationship with. Um, these are the places where artists are being truly nurtured and audiences are being truly cultivated. So I want to just, you know, put the emphasis back on, on these places that have been doing incredibly good work for a very long time and, and are not kind of side places to kind of, you know, churn your wheels while you, while, while you get called up by the big dogs. Um, I, I would also just say, I think, because we are talking about a larger system that affects the field, I think it, this is a moment in which filmmakers have to engage in justice movements that address those issues head on. I don't think we are uh, uh, filmmakers and artists in our culture um, have the luxury of just making art. I think we have to be in relationship with movements because we are not going to fix the structures in our field without being part of a movement that is trying to do that. And we can make, you know, you know, we can put band-aids and we could do harm reduction kind of work, as Jesse's saying, to, you know, we can try to fix representation at certain levels. We can try to address pipeline issues. We can we can make little fixes and inroads here and there. But ultimately, if the system is intact, we are just tinkering with the machinery. And what we need, what artists are of all backgrounds need to think about is if our films are about inequity, but we are not invested in how to change that inequity, we're simply looking at it and looking at it and looking at it and, and interpreting it and representing it. It is, it is unconscionable for us to not be engaging in justice movements that end that inequity. At a fundamental level, we have to be in conversation. And the people who are pushing justice around you know, anti-capitalism or ab abolition movements are talking, are putting harder asks in front of all of us as a society. And we, that's what we need to be a part of. We need to be in conversation with these movements, I think, if we really want to see some change. Hmm. Um, let me, you know, you're, uh, when I hear what you're saying, um, I hear a sense of bringing activism to documentary filmmaking. I, and I think there are many different models of uh, documentary filmmaking. There are some films where people are collaborating with the the people who are on camera and who they're making films about. There's other forms of filmmaking uh, that, you know, are trying to keep a journalistic distance uh, from their subject because they, they're diving into something. They don't want to be too close to, uh, to someone that they're making a film about because they want to, uh, you know, see that person uh, or see that subject for, um, you know, its, uh, its flaws as well. And to, you know, to be critical about a subject. Um, I wonder for you know either of you uh, who want to take this on, you know, uh, thinking about this, you know, the, these different kinds of, uh, of filmmaking, particularly the 
the, the, you know, the, what I'm talking about is the, the, what I'm describing as journalistic distance. Uh, I think what a privilege that is. <laughs> um, I mean, I guess some of that, some of that, I would say, I mean, journalism is, is somewhat apart to me than documentary. Some documentaries act as journalism, some do not. Um, you know, I, I think there's a, there's a reckoning happening around the false uh, narrative of uh, objective, object, objectivity in journalism, because it doesn't exist, or if, if it does, it's for very privileged uh, part of the ruling class to uh, get to have that. Um, in filmmaking, I guess, to me, the key is not so much whether you want to have an authorial distance from your subject, it's what's your accountability to your subjects and their community? What is your transparency in terms of your process back to them? Are you in right relations? If you want to be at a distance, because that's the style of film or that's how you want your audience to understand that story, fine. But I think you there still has to be an accountability and a transparency and, and a right relations with both your subject and your, your audience. And it, and it strikes me, Tom, that you know one of the challenges documentary has, and I think this is true of cinema in, in general, is as a medium, it was born with these problems right away. Like, you know, when I think of the first images shot by Thomas Edison, um, those sort of, you know, those were false images. Uh, Nanook of the North, often credited as the first documentary, completely made up uh, film. Um, and so it, like, you know, I think this is one of the things for when people that don't come from those traditions, when we actually gain access, is to transform those spaces into something like when those falsities and those those issues are built into the medium itself, it can be a challenge for filmmakers that come from that tradition to actually unpack that. And I think that's why we need more artists engaged in this so that they can actually figure out how to do these things because I'm not sure I have the answer uh, or a programmer is going to but an artist may have a different approach and you know just to quickly go back to your your discussion around the business and and I think so much of that stuff is bullshit I think I think we get we we're told that the audience likes these things but we we live in a world where we don't have full total free choice so like yeah, Marvel movies are really popular, but they're also like one of the few things that gets made on that scale and pushed in that way. So like, is that the audience loves them or is that we're, we're sort of conditioned to do all of that? And, and I think that's also why we need leadership change across the industry, because I don't think that that's a lot of that stuff is true. And I think we get told those things by people who are gatekeepers and have a specific idea and who grew up in a place where there weren't diverse stories. So of course, they don't think those work now because they haven't worked in the past because they weren't ever tried in the past so that you get in this circle. When I think we have ample evidence all the time that these stories work just great and are totally marketable and win best picture at the Oscars, like an anti-capitalist, anti-colonial story from Korea wins best picture at the Oscars. Um, yeah because like that distributor gave it the same shot it did there. Like they equalized the Oscar push and voila, it won. Um, and so like, I think if we equalized the effort we put into these films, if we equalized the money, the time, maybe even extended time, because I agree with Sonia, part of the issue is the churn that, uh, that the, the, the 
machine of the industry has decided is the right thing for it when that isn't an artistic practice, that's an industrial practice. And so like we need to new leadership to break it up. You know, one of the things we're looking at when we offer development is elongate what that means. What in Canada, six months and $15,000. Well, <laughs> that's not that good. Like what if it was $50,000 in a year or, you know, like, Make these make these things better. Invest the same amount that we have, and stop clinging to notions of what the market wanted 20 years ago. I I think we're we're perilously close to where we were in the 60s and 70s, where the people that actually run the sector no longer have any connection to the audience they're trying to sell. And back then, what they did was just turn over the reins to the filmmakers, and they should do the same thing now, but in a more way more equitable. Thing. The revolution of our moment, even in the COVID moment, is not a technological or even business-based revolution. It's who is telling the story. That's what is the big change we need to see. Um, and that ultimately will actually change a whole bunch of the, the rest of the ecosystem. Once you empower different storytellers and give them the same runway that we have for everyone else, they'll change, just like those folks change the sector, to what we have now, it can be changed again just by empowering people in the same way that we've empowered other communities or the dominant cultures empowered itself over and over again. Give us that opportunity and, you know, we can change it. I don't know how to decolonize a set, but I bet if I fund a bunch of Indigenous filmmakers for the next 20 years at a level that they've never received before, I bet they'll figure it out. Sonia, when we talk about uh, kind of near-term um, making progress uh, in this capitalist documentary system that uh, we live in. That, you know, this few weeks ago, maybe it was a panel that you moderated at Blackstar. I heard someone say, they talk about this as the golden age of documentary, but it's become the corporate age of uh, documentary. Um, you know, we know that a lot of the people who are making the choices at the bigger companies uh, are white and homogenous. Um, uh, do you see in your conversation, since you've been kind of close to this, do you see things changing there? Changing where? Changing at, you know, it's, it's, uh, some of the larger companies. I mean, uh, you know, companies, do you see more, um, uh, you know, hires happening that are going to make these uh, organizations more inclusive? Um, you know, not, not yet. Um, I, I think, uh, you know, actually, I think, uh, I think a lot of these, you know, you know, I, you know, this isn't a really, uh, uh, an, an, an incredible moment when we see the dominance of these commercial platforms, these streaming platforms, and these commercial players, um, and influence the field in ways that, um, you know, have have fundamentally changed uh, um, how how the industry operates, and you know, well, you know, I I, I talk about we you know we we went from documentary being spinach of the you know media ecosystem to like the sexy you know um, neighbor across the street, and it's very very different. And and I think um, the flush of money from these commercial platforms has really changed things, and um, it's you know. Uh, I think what's you know what's what's bewildering about all of it is that um, at least in in the United States, you know, so many filmmakers 
in particular, emerging filmmakers um, of all backgrounds get their first for, for, foray into this work um, through public media dollars. And public media has a mandate to public good. It has a mandate to reach diverse audiences. And that, in many ways, shapes the kind of ethos that some filmmakers have as they enter this field. Um, when you're thinking about people who are entering into nonfiction, maybe from Hollywood, from scripted television, from feature films, and now they're seeing these commercial platforms that are giving out resources to, um, uh, are open to pitching um, to filmmakers who've never done nonfiction and saying, you know, why don't you try your hand at a true crime series? Um, you know, these folks are not coming into the field with the same ethos necessarily. They are coming into the field maybe with different tropes in their head that worked in fiction. Mm -hmm. They're coming into the field through uh, an entity that has a profit motive at the at the foundation um, that are thinking um, they're coming into the field through an entity that is not investing in the careers or, or of artists, um, is not doing a whole lot to provide transparency around who that artist is reaching in terms of their audience. So there's all this kind of, um, you know, there's a, a whole different method of operations on the commercial side than from the public side. And even for people who get private philanthropy for their early films, there's at least some level of transparency um, and accountability that isn't there on the commercial side. So I think as those platforms begin to dominate the field and bring in filmmakers who are not in even in relationship with people who've been in the nonfiction field for a very long time, and not particularly that interested because these, non these commercial platforms are creating in many ways like a studio system where they have some vetted filmmakers who might have been vetted on the fiction side and who they are kind of, you know, there's a funnel um, where the content can come from them and they're very comfortable and they're not comfortable with this whole other pool of candidates. And, and so I think, you know, um, because of, you know, because it's, you know, because the field is getting these new filmmakers who maybe have a very different orientation to the work, these commercial platforms have a very different orientation to the communities. Um, I think that's why they've been even slow to respond in the, this moment in an authentic way beyond a solidarity statement on a website. And I think um, what they are doing is, as Jesse said, responding to, they're trying to address optics you know, you know, the optics of an all white staff, the optics of an all white leadership team looks bad in this moment. So they're trying to make some quick leadership changes. But fundamental, fundamentally, these are commercial platforms that are built on profit motives. And I'm not sure how you fix that. Um, but throwing one person of color into a sea of other folks is not going to fix anything. It's just going to make a, that person have a really tough <laughs> hill to climb um, to create an ingrained system. Um, so, you know, I have not been particularly hopeful I, uh, I, uh, about how these commercial platforms are responding in this moment. Not, not hopeful yet, but I do think that um, for better or for worse, pressure, pressure, pressure works. Pressure is what makes change in the, for those commercial platforms. I want to thank Sonia Childress and Jesse Wente for speaking with me. You can find links to their work in our show notes. Look out for Jesse's new book being published this month. The title is Unreconciled, Family, Truth, and Indigenous Resistance. Thanks to the Toronto International Film Festival for holding this conversation. 
This year's festival takes place September 9th to the 18th. I'll be holding a round of talks at the industry conference with filmmakers such as Stanley Nelson, Chai Vassarelli, Jimmy Chin, and others. You can access the industry conference online from around the world. For more information, visit tiff.net slash industry. Thanks to our team, series producer Hannah Norden-Swan and web designer Cross Strategy. Our theme music is composed by Andre Williams, and our executive producer is Raphael Nehausen. I'm Tom Powers. You can follow me on Twitter at T-H-O-M Powers. You can read our show notes and sign up for our newsletter at purenonfiction.net. Thank you.